Welcome. Today we are interviewing someone who has a story to say, a story that I came across recently and I found it very, very fascinating, very, very inspiring. You know that I have a thing for inspiring stories. I've told you many times that one of my favorite books is uh, uh, the, the, the story of David Goggins. This is a story that is somewhere over there in terms of how inspiring I found it. And it's a story of an artist. It's a story of John Voss, who is an artist, but also who is someone who is in the objectivist universe, to put it this way, someone who appreciates the work of Ayn Rand. So, John, thank you so much for being uh, for being with us. So let's start from the beginning, because your story literally starts from the beginning. So 1981, you're born, but already life throws some significant hurdles in your way. So what happens when you're born? Um, well, in 81, I was born with um, a condition called osteogenesis imperfecta. And it's a bone condition that um, results from uh, improper formation or improper amount of bodies creating of the connective tissue collagen. So um, it has a wide, wide ranging effect on my body, but the primary um, manifestation is broken bones. So when I was born, I had 13 broken bones from the process um, of birth. And then uh, they, they also found other fractures that had already healed before I was even born. So they diagnosed me with the condition within 24 hours, which isn't always the case with people with my disability. So then at, at some point, you start realizing that this is something which has an effect on a, on your life and at some, so you are raised in a farm so you are raised in a place where being able to to move around must have been very important yet though you find some refuge to put it this way you find some oasis of beauty in this difficulty in art do you want to tell us a bit more how art comes into your life um <clears throat> well i I like to create things almost immediately. I like, I don't remember a time I was in my life that I hadn't um, been doing some type of creating art. Um, when I was young, I think before, you know, before I can even remember, I think art was extra stimulating for me because um, obviously having broken bones every few months, especially in the legs made me very immobile. Um, so, you know, and there's not the internet, this was 80, you know, in the mid 80s, there wasn't anything to entertain me other than the movies they could find and games and stuff and creating stuff. So I think I was really drawn to the creative stuff because it was a good link between something physical and something mental, emotional that I that could completely distract me from my situation. Otherwise, I could get stuck in dwelling on, you know, the negative aspects of it. But uh, yeah, I was doing art immediately. I'm told that I was selling my drawings to family at Christmas and stuff. Uh, <laughs> so you know. here's the here's also the 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 business mind, which we will yeah. see it will come out uh, a bit later. So when you say creating at that point, we mo we don't only mean drawing, which later would be your main thing. But I think you also did Legos and things. So anything that had to do with creating stuff. Absolutely. Anything. I mean, I uh, loved Lincoln Logs. I loved Legos. 
block, you know, just wooden blocks. Um, I even when I got a little bit older, I would actually draw out floor plans and then the outsides of houses. I was actually considering being an architect for uh, a short time in high school. So I let, let, let's let's tell people this is many years before you come across to the the, the fountainhead. So you haven't come across Ayn Rand at that point. Yeah, this everything I'm speaking of now is well before um, I took philosophy seriously, I guess, um, and found objectivism. But right. So a question yeah, about I, I loved building. I loved creating. Even as another example, I would um, I was part of a basically a research thing at the National Institutes of Health, and I was flown out there for a week every three months, and so I had to. I had a hospital room for a week and one of the perks of it actually was I was on the kids floor and down the uh, down the hall from my room was a playroom but there was also a woman in there that directed all kinds of different crafts you got to choose whether you wanted to do little fake stained glass paintings or ironing uh, plastic beads together or you know a multitude of different stuff and I there was nothing I didn't like doing and I would be in that room with her as much as I could be. So, um, right. So, before we get to how we you viewed the the situation when you become a bit more, let's say, philosophically conscious later, at that stage in your life. So you so you said in 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 your talk you spoke uh, last year in uh, Toscon and this was the the talk that I that I've watched. So this is how I know about your life. So. You said that you were a, a, a benevolent kid. You had a very, a very loving family, but at the same time, there was this constant struggle, if for nothing else, for the physical pain. That so, for people who are not very familiar with that disease, in simple terms, it means that it's very easy to break a, a bone. So quite often, you were for long streaks of time in uncomfortable situations, like physically uncomfortable situations. So at that stage, so before you come, let's say, philosophically conscious, how do you deal, let's say, existentially with this situation? Like, hey, life has handed me a card, which is not as good as other people's cards. So how do you process it at that age? Let's say, as a kid and as an early teen. Um, At that point, I was very, um, very mixed. I... uh... It's, it's very hard to explain because even when I was well and didn't have any fractures, I had a lot of anxiety because I knew that at any time um, something could happen and I would be back in a cast or in pain or, you know, all kinds of different scenarios, surgeries and things like that. So um, the anxiety kind of led to a little bit of depression then and I would, you know, fluctuate back and forth between, you know, the, the depression and the anxiety, but also when I was free, I did have, I feel like I had a sense of really trying to take advantage of moments um, and enjoy things. And uh, I love to play and build and all that. So when I was, as long as I could focus on the building and the playing and the good, I wouldn't think about, I, w- I wouldn't even consider that other kind of 
life. It was almost like I was living two lives. It's, it's uh, really strange. Um, so I didn't know how to exactly cope with it. Um, but I just, I did. I had a lot of anxiety in school. Um, and so, school so when you, so school was, uh, uh, where you, so, because I, I found very interesting what you said, you use the term freedom and use it also in your talk. So what I'm trying to understand is, was art something which was there mostly, let's say, in the dark hours? Or was something that, okay, now I have, in my good time, I do art. So was art something like, it is my bridge to the, whenever life is tolerable in terms of like physical, I can do things, I do art. Yes. Or art was there also in the times when you say, not the times of freedom, but the times, let's say, the darker times. Yes, both. That's what... I think that's why it was so powerful for me because it was a constant that I could rely on. I love to do it. I, I used it maybe for different things, you know, psychologically when I was in, in a cast versus when I was free, but um, the enjoyment level was just made. It's like, it's what made it worth it to me. I couldn't identify that, but um And I think also psychologically, art gave me a sense of control over something. In, in the act of creating something, I was in complete control from the goal to the execution, you know, to how I felt about it afterwards. And, you know, that's not how I felt with a lot of my life. You know, I was dependent on people a lot, especially um, when there was a major fracture. So the reason I bring up freedom a lot Um, is I'm not sure if I made this clear, but there were times in my childhood when I had to have specific types of casts. So if I broke a femur, let's say the long bone of the upper thigh, um, that one, your knee and your hip have to be immobilized for it to heal properly, at least back in the mid 80s, that's how they did it. And so you had what was called a spike of cast and the spike of cast went from um, your mid chest all the way down to your toes. Um, and usually both legs, because they didn't want risk of the other leg hanging out and breaking because, you know, it's open to, you know, risk. But so these casts that went from my mid chest to my toes, the spike of cast, what made me completely immobile. I couldn't lay completely flat and I couldn't completely sit up. Um, I was laying in that position for a minimum of three months usually. So it was incredibly uncomfortable and itchy and boring and at the beginning, usually painful. So it's just an awful experience, especially when you're a kid. So the sense of freedom that I experience when that cast comes off is something that I can't quite explain uh, to, to other people. It's a metaphysical freedom that just, it feels so amazing to take a bath for the first time in three months feels It's the best bath you will ever take. I promise you that. Um, so that sense of freedom. And also, I not only gain the physical freedom, but I also gain some of my freedom, my personal freedom back. I don't need people to bathe me anymore. I don't need people to uh, bring me every, every uh, sustenance that I might need for the day. I, I can go to them. You know, I can have some agency in gaining my values. When I'm in a cast, I feel like I'm almost completely helpless. A spike of cast particularly. 
Right. And uh, yeah, that, that's something that really, really hit me the way you use the term free will. But also what you said that with art, it's one area where you have control. Like as you said uh, in your narration about your life, at some point it kind of became a bit more predictable what you could do and what you couldn't do, what was less risky. And my records produced after puberty. So I, I could go months to a year without a fracture, which was rare when I was young. Um, but yeah, even with that uh, less lessening fracture rate, my anxiety didn't really subside. I didn't know how to deal with that in the depression. And then, you know, high school and all that, throw it together. And um, I just didn't really know how to cope. Uh, so everything. did you go to an actual school or were you homeschooled? Um, I went to public school uh, and I was actually not put with the special ed students. I was in the general population or whatever you call it of the school. Um, there was just certain things that were done to kind of help mitigate my risk, you know, especially when I was younger. The teacher had to explain to the class that you can't just go up and pat me on the back or, you know, you kind of got to be careful. And so right. that was a necessary thing. And I completely understand why uh, that had to happen. But at the same time that started as adolescence came in, that kind of thing started to alienate me from the kids. When I was younger, it didn't. The, the little kids, the kindergartners, when they're told that kind of stuff, they're more interested in like, I had lots of little friends in a little cadre. But as I got older, I noticed that that factor kind of made people distance themselves. They just were not sure how to approach the situation probably. And then. Right. So now I want to ask you about two significant uh, events in your life. The one is someone comes in your way, a teacher who also has a story to tell, also has a story of overcoming to tell someone who has experienced a different kind of darkness in uh, actually in communist China. So it does the and also a dark period of your life where you even had thoughts about whether life was worth living. So I tell us which was the order which came first and uh, elaborate in whichever of these two stories or both you want. Um, so yeah, I was in mid college or early mid-college. So you study art for people who didn't see, who have don't know it. So you go to college and you study art. Yeah, I had been doing art, obviously, on my own. But I started college in 1999 for a Bachelor of Fine Art. And um, I think, to tell you the truth, I can't quite remember if I had met the professor first or the, I think, okay, so in college, when college started, um, I hadn't dealt psychologically with most of the depression and the anxiety and college was just kind of a whirlwind, um, something that I wasn't used to being on my own like that. Um, and there came a point when the stress and everything compounded upon me and I did try to uh, take my own life. Um, this was not by any means the first time I had thoughts. Um, I 
I struggled a lot with depression and stuff like that in high school. So in college, it just kind of came to a head and um, I made it through it. And I knew something had to change within myself because after that point, I didn't, I knew I didn't want to die. I, it just, after the experience, it broke me of that in a way, but I also didn't know like how to get over all the things that brought me to that point either. But, um, so, so, so if I understand well from your talk, the, the stuff that you thought of ending your life became another burden, let's say, like, why did I do that? What brought me to that? So it became another thing that you had to, to, to carry. Right. I needed, I knew I needed to solve the psychological aspect. Um, but I also somewhat understood that art had something to do with it in the, the, the figuring it out part. It didn't have something to do with my, uh, attempt, but so it was around right around that time. It was after that I met on um, Lee Hu and he was, um, who became my mentor and my professor for many years in drawing and painting. Um, he was a remarkable man. Uh, he lived through the cultural revolution as a young, as a young person. Um, his father was um, labeled a dissident. Um, and so they put his father into a labor camp, I believe, or, or even possibly jail or prison. Um, and, and his children were sent to the rice fields to work. And, you know, this was at the point where the high schools or the public schools were basically shut down. And, um, either way he didn't go to school. He just worked in the rice fields, but even at that, he saved up enough, um, rice to go to Shanghai. And he lived off that rice for about a, for a short time in order to get into Shanghai university for art. And um, he got his master's, I believe. Um, I can't remember which university that was, but he did make it all the way through Shanghai and got his degree there for art and uh, then came to the US uh, to I, teach. I can't help but comment here, like his story, like today we hear from some people, oh, I can't make it in life because out to there, you know, the left is dominating. Like, listen to the story of that guy. He goes from a rice field, basically to a university in Mao's China, because what he wants to do, he, he, he wants to do it so much that not even like the worst dictators in the history of humanity could stop it. So take right. lessons, people, when some of you think, oh, out there, it's so bad, I can't make it in this world. So he, sorry he about that. The Continue. most passionate person I'd ever met. Um, he was prolific. He... He showed work all over the world. Um, yeah, I, I never met anyone in person like him before. So, right. and even him telling, he would tell us his, his story, all his new classes. He would kind of talk about it and show his work. Um, he thought it was important for us to understand his, where he was coming from before we, you know, try to learn from him. But he was just amazing and uh, just super driven. Uh, he he loved his work. He had hundreds of paintings in the works at one time, and he just he was amazing. So even but even at the beginning, um, 
I didn't fully like realize the story. I didn't connect with it completely. It wasn't until um, after I had discovered objectivism and some of the ideas there that I really realized how remarkable a person he was, um, not just as an artist. So before we, uh, we go to the second big entry in your life, which is not only pro the, uh, your mentor, Lee, but also objectives, because at some point you did the Fountainhead and a lot of things changed on how yes. you view the world. Before we get there, let's see what our audience says. So Kim says, I love John's artwork. I'm thinking of purchasing a piece soon. So people, don't take my word. Go to John's website. So it's wosart.com, wosart.com. And there you will also you will also see some examples of his work. And I have to tell you, John, my favorite one is uh, the one which has it's in the category still life, and it's the one that is called to the glory of man. So this is a painting where there's a book open, which I assume is the founderhead, and behind this Atlas Ragged Anthem and with the Living. But before I even realized that these are Rand's book. The, the colors and the like the intellectual environment is so nice that anyway the, it also has a purchase choice so if anyone wants to you people know what to buy me now for my for my birth this is such a beautiful beautiful painting so I encourage people go to the WOS art so this is from John Voss uh, your surname art.com and check out his uh, his work and actually that particular one, I see is uh, is you can buy it from our friends the Corders who have also been on the show who are also in the objectivist uh, in the objectivist universe. So let's see what else the our audience says. So yeah, people thinking of uh, buying one of artworks. Thank you very much, Jonathan. But also let me say something about today's episode. So today is one of the episodes that are kindly sponsored by one of the supporters of the Ayn Rand Center UK. And today is from our friend Thomas Bison. And Thomas is a personal trainer and uh, we've had him in the past. He has a very unique approach to training. So if you have enough of struggling with your general fitness and things that don't work for you, and if you want to have a tailored fitness plan by someone who knows, someone who's going to spend time someone who is going to approach your fitness inductively, inductively, then you can check out, uh, you can check out uh, Tom. So it's going to be, you can, you, you will be able to find, you're going to be able to find a link and actually just give him, give him a shout and you can discuss and he can give you a free assessment and you can decide whether you want to go with his uh, with his uh, with his routine. So this is our friend Thomas Bison, and thank you very much, Thomas, for sponsoring this very special episode. And thank you very much, Ryan, for your contributions. So let's get back to to, to John's story. So at some point, I think during the college year, you come across the Fountainhead. Yes. At what stage in your life are you? What was your experience and what was your post-fountainhead experience? Uh, 
I would say I came across the Fountainhead towards the end of college. Um, and I had been working with Lee Hu, you know, for a year or two by then, I believe. Um, and Lee actually uh, started having us do self-portraits around the same time that I was reading the Fountainhead. So, and Lee was getting us to look more deeply too in these self-portraits, not just, you know, paint yourself from a mirror. And so I was starting to introspect a lot more based on that. And then also reading the Fountainhead at the same time, something just kind of uh, started to click. I don't know, I can't explain it, but I was blown away by the Fountainhead. Um, I, uh, there were so many things in it that I got that were important to me. Um, I can't even remember them all. You know, they, it was so striking at the beginning, but um, I was fascinated by Rourke's character and um, just the, the storyline, everything about that. I just, I fell in love with it. I had not read anything like that. I was, in, I was greatly inspired by it and I wanted, it made me realize that that's what I wanted my work to do for people. I want to figure out a way where I can give people that feeling through, you know, recreating something. So, uh, the, you, you mentioned you mentioned the self portrait, and I find it interesting that you said in your talk that throughout your life you had a different experience with self portrait. That it was something that. Oh, yeah, it was yeah. very difficult for you. Yeah, in high school, um, you know, we would get the inevitable self-portrait assignments. And yeah, I did not, I did not like doing portraits in general, but I did not like doing self-portraits. I didn't, um, I didn't want to look at myself, you know, it just came down to that. And, you know, most teenagers, it, it wasn't an unusual uh, uh, complaint. I wasn't different in that. Nobody liked to do them. So, you know, I didn't really think about it too much, but um, I did do some self-portraits in high school and, you know, looking back at them, they're very telling. Uh, and so Lee, um, my professor, when he had us do them, first he had us just do a lot of them, like just simple ones. But then he started asking questions he wanted us to do, um, I remember a particular one was a, uh, an assignment of a double self-portrait and one, one, so you, that means just two of you in one, in one uh, composition. So, and I did um, the two versions of myself, basically the, the version that people called happy and confident. And, you know, I would be, I would be told by a lot of adults you know, how strong and brave I was, you know, basically for living life with this disability. And uh, I, that's not the way I felt, but I would continue to, you know, put on that persona so as to not even have to talk about the insecurities that I had or the depression and the anxiety. And so, you know, the portrait was of me, two of me is one of me hiding behind the other. Um, and that got me on a whole, uh, after he assigned that, I started doing a lot more self-portraits. I was starting to become more comfortable with myself and realizing the importance of introspecting through my work, 
um, to try and solve um, to try and solve the issue of you know what makes life worth it, I guess, because um, that's what it always came down to with, with me is if I was going to go through all of this and everything I went through as a kid, then my life has to be worth it or I won't feel, and I don't mean worth it to others, I mean worth it to myself that I, that it's uh, good and uh, enjoyable and I'm happy, you know, that can only come from your own judgment. So, uh, so that was in a way the, the fountainhead effect that it was less about, okay, how do other people see me or like, do they pity me or do they see me as a source of inspiration? It was more like, how do I view my life? Exactly. How do I see myself? Because work um, had no concern for the views of others, basically. I mean, I mean that on a, on a certain sense. Right. Yeah. But I meant himself. He knew he was the final judge. Um, and all the people in the world can tell you how great you are and everything. But if you don't uh, fundamentally judge it that way or feel that way about yourself, that none of that matters of what other people tell you. So right. I definitely saw that in Rourke and that he basically showed me that, or Ayn Rand showed me through that character that I needed to find or to create a self. Um, I, I didn't really know why I liked things. I didn't, you know, I, needed to introspect more and I use self-portraiture to do that right. and so would assign a few portraits here and there that were self-portraits but um, I took off and my body of work at the end of college was a lot of self-portraits and so um, my senior show was um, was that collection and a, a local college um, professor came in and saw my show and asked if I would do a larger show of just self-portraits at their college in a year from that point. And so within that year, I painted um, uh, enough work to fill a gallery. And I also devoured um, everything by Ayn Rand. So um, it was... So a, how, how old were you then? Um, well, so... The, like I said, he found, he asked me to do that from my senior show in college. So that was 2005. Okay. And, um, so I was uh, about, you know, 24. 24. Okay. And just to say, people, in your list of works, there's a whole category which is, which is uh, self-portraiture. And uh, there's also, there's a nice self-portrait that you mentioned in your other talk, which is you on the mirror and there are two different people the ones looking the one way the other looking the other way and I, I have to say it's not in your collection today but i found this also very very moving so you spend let's say five minutes in your talk talking about that period but i think that painting you see that painting and you get you get exactly get exactly what you mean so i i found that very very uh, eff effective so let me ask you two questions as we reach towards an end, because again, this this could be like a three-hour uh, <laughs> episode. So here's what some people say about objectivism. And I have to say from the start that I always found something wrong and disagreeable with it, although it comes from authorities of objectivism. They say something like, well, objectivism only applies, you know, if you have like... A, uh, like basically it says, you know, if you if life strikes you with some very profound uh, 
tragedy or you know you there's a disability that maybe that's not a philosophy for you maybe then i don't know most people go to stoicism and all that stuff oh, but yeah. i never really got this but why don't you tell us from your point of uh, view how do you how do you view objectivism also related to someone who needs to overcome something which is unimaginable to most of us so we're not talking about you know you lose the love of your life or like you are not allowed to do your work because they don't recognize you. Here we talk about something which is like almost a metaphysical struggle and difficulty. Yeah, absolutely. And I think actually, I, I've, I never really thought that. I saw how objectivism was immediately applicable to me, um, to my life from the start. But, you know, as time went on, I started to, you know, see those thoughts or even um, haters who find out I'm an Ayn Rand fan and have a disability, they love to uh, tell me how she would have let me die in the streets and all these things. And um, I'm just like, but people like me or people with a major life struggle, I think need objectivism even more. I, I, everyone needs it, obviously, but objectivism, is a tool for making life worth it, in my opinion. And so for making your life worth it, to be specific. And so you, when you have a major struggle in your life, like um, someone who has to escape, you know, like my Professor Lee or like in my park, or someone who has, I mean, there are people with my disabilities that have even, have it even way worse than I do. They can't even sit up because their spine deteriorates. Um, and so those people, the people that have the struggle need to make the joy in life that much stronger in order to, to make that struggle worth the struggle itself. If you go through life just struggling and struggling and never make it to a point of at least some sense of happiness, then then all that struggle was almost for nothing. And that you need a way to see your life in an objective, from an objective perspective and what's possible to you and what isn't possible to you. And I think um, objectivism and art in general help you uh, organize that kind of stuff and look at things so that you can see what, what you need to not focus on so much and what you should focus on more. Uh, right. I've had more questions, but I think this ending tops, uh, tops everything. Uh, I have questions about art. I have questions about, first of all, what is your sense of life playlist? I'm so curious to, to see that, but I, I think we should continue at some point this, uh, this discussion. So let's see what the, what the audience uh, was. Okay. The, oh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, people. Again, you can find you can find John's you can find John's work at uh, was wosart.com. And again, I encourage you to go and see the examples of his work, and particularly where it says "Still Life," the second work from the top, which is called "To the Glory of Man." Although maybe. 
I shouldn't encourage people too much because there's a limited edition of 95 and it's going to run out and I'm not going to have one for my office because that's my that's my favorite one. John, you're going to have the last word. You can tell us more about where people can find you. But let me say once more a big thank you to the sponsor of today's episode. So again, you can approach Razi and you can sponsor one of the episodes of Ayn Rand Center UK. Today's sponsor is Tom Bison. So again, if you had enough of struggling with your fitness and things don't seem to work for you, embrace a new approach. Team up with Thomas. He's someone who shares the values and mostly the way of thinking of our community. And so if you want an individualized tailored program, go to to Tom. And for a limited time, you can claim a free 30-minute assessment so that he can uncover your unique fitness needs. So, and if you agree to work with him, he'll help you craft a personalized workout, a nutrition plan. He's the guy who made me understand, by the way, why static stretching doesn't work. He has a very interesting video on on Instagram where he stretches uh, like a steak and says, does this make any sense? No, if you want to make it tender, you put it you on fire. You don't just stretch it. So he has a way of explaining things, which is quite good. So uh, I I encourage you to check out and don't let this opportunity pass you. So free 30-minute call if you want from the sponsor of today's episode. The link is on the chat and book your free assessment now. So, John, last word is for you. What do you want to leave people with? And where can they find more about your work? I know you do also you do a bit of uh, you do a bit of speaking. So you are someone who you you get your message across. So where can people find more, and how can people follow you, and where and how can they buy your uh, your work? Well, the best place to buy my work right now is probably Cordaire Fine Art. Um, I I'm uh, represented by them for at least ten years now, and they actually are selling prints of uh, the painting you mentioned, The Glory of Man, um, the original sold you know a while back, but. Um, we're doing some really nice prints of it. So um, otherwise, you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram, which I think are linked in my homepage and my website. So if you go to wasart.com, you'll be able to find that um, mm-hmm. along with other publications and things about me and stuff like that. So, um, And you also do commissioned uh, work and uh, stuff. Yeah, I do some commission work um, right now. Um, I'm very behind, so I'm just taking a few here and there. But um, yeah, right now I have a huge stained glass commission I'm doing. And then I have several painting commissions waiting after that's finished. So, Okay. I'm, I'm sure that someone has already told you the idea. Hey, why don't you do some cool paintings? I don't know, of like Atlas Rug or Fountainhead. And if there's like a movie or a book. You... But anyway, you, you already have enough work. So... Well, that's what I did the glory of man to. Um, I did some, some, some portraits of my professor Lee before he passed. Um, and I thought, well, I consider Ayn Rand to be a type of mentor to me as well, even though I never met her. Met her. And from what I've read of, of her and everything, I, I thought she wouldn't really appreciate a, self, a portrait of herself as much as she would appreciate an ode to her life's work which ultimately was her fiction um, 
they're fiction pieces. So that's what's in the still life is all our fiction work. And I tried to give it that atmosphere of and it, it, it works it definitely works and again the biggest odes you the biggest tribute you can pay to a philosopher like Grant is to use that philosophy to view your life in a complete in, in a new way and to thrive and do the things that you do so yeah. you you've probably heard it from many people but also hear it from me hats off what you do is very inspiring but it, like even if I hadn't hadn't heard anything about your story these paintings, are are inspiring irrespective of the story the story is just like something that adds to it but this the paintings themselves are very very beautiful so thanks for uh for bringing all this to to all this creativity on and uh and uh let's talk again at some point let's talk again about at some point soon because i have half a page of more questions about art so Sounds great. I'm totally down for that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, John. Thanks very much to Tom for, for to Thomas for sponsoring this episode. Many thanks to our viewers. Yes, thank you, Thomas. All the best. Bye-bye. Take care.